One of the most fascinating things is watching the science of a disease process improve, such as in type 2 diabetes. So when I was a medical student, resident, early years of an attending physician, there really since then has been a paradigm shift. So we've always known that diabetes is a horrendous cardiovascular risk factor, meaning it causes coronary disease and kidney disease and amputations, and you can go down the list. But what was accepted for the longest period of time is this focus on glucose lowering. But the paradigm shift really has occurred that there are a lot of different glucose lowering anti-hyperglycemic agents. And despite different classes of medications that lower glucose, often very similarly as far as how low the glucose gets lowered, there is a difference in their cardiovascular outcomes. The focus solely on sugar, how low we can get the hemoglobin A1C, how low we can keep the sugars solely as an outcome has pretty much gone away. Meaning what we really care about now is are we going to make an impact by lowering that sugar and attending to other cardiovascular mortality issues? And that's not to say that blood sugar isn't important. It's very important because improved glycemic control is associated with reduced microvascular complications. And those microvascular complications can really affect a person's quality of life. Each of us has our own philosophies, but I'm of the philosophy only for myself that I would rather have quality over quantity. So for me, going blind or developing dementia or needing to be on dialysis. Those are really important issues if I were a diabetic. So improved glycemic control for the reduction of those issues by improving the risk factors so I don't develop microvascular disease is very important. But what we have longed for is also to reduce macrovascular complications and overall mortality. And that really, in the past, has not been the case with a lot of drugs that we have had on the market for type 2 diabetes. It's been a really important question why lowering the plasma glucose over the years has not prevented cardiovascular disease the way we thought it would. Is it because just lowering glucose doesn't have that effect on macrovascular disease and only has an improvement in microvascular disease? Or was it the mechanisms by which we were trying to lower the glucose weren't effective. And for that reason, you've got to give some credit to the FDA. I know there's a lot of groups out there that want every drug to just be released right away and people figure it out. But the FDA now requires that there be cardiovascular outcomes trials for new therapies that come to the market for type 2 diabetes. I live in Colorado Springs where a lot of people feel the government's role is to spy on us and then send us the bill for spying on us. But once in a while, they are doing some good things and the Food and Drug Administration in this case is wise to ask for those cardiovascular outcome trials. The result is that we are looking at a lot of these new classes of medication. So in the last lecture, I talked about the SGLT2 inhibitors and some of their cardiovascular outcomes as well as other issues associated with them. And now we'll be talking about the GLP-1 receptor agonists. And already two of those, liraglutide and semaglutide, have reduced cardiovascular events compared with placebo. 
Now, does that mean that every drug in the class or all future GLP-1 agonists are definitely going to lower cardiovascular outcomes? This remains to be seen, although my philosophy is make tons of different predictions and then people ignore the ones that you got wrong and tend to think you're genius about the ones you got right. But there's a good chance with GLP-1s that there will be a class effect. And one of the class effects that we do know with GLP-1s to date is that they do cause weight loss. Now, why do they cause weight loss? Because as a class, they slow gastric emptying and they also seem to have a direct effect on the central nervous system, which promotes satiety. And a lot of type 2 diabetics are overweight, and if they can decrease their portions, they are going to be healthier in a lot of different ways. Just by not eating as much as you used to eat, you're probably going to have less sugar intake, less carbohydrate intake, and therefore less hyperglycemia. But one of the themes of these lectures is that glucose homeostasis, how high and low our blood sugar goes, is really dependent on a complex interplay of multiple hormones. So when you look at the GLP-1 receptor agonist or the glucagon-like peptide 1 mimetics or receptor agonists, they both are the same class, not only do they slow gastric emptying, but they also suppress glucagon. The glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists suppress glucagon. And that is one of the reasons I did a whole separate lecture on glucagon, which I urge you to go back and listen to if you skipped that one and went right to this one. But suppressing glucagon is just one of the things, among many things that we're going to get into, that this class of medications does. Now, there's a lot of medications in this class. So there's Bieta, which is exanatide. There's Trulicity, which is dulaglutide. Victoza, liraglutide. You can keep going down the list. There's going to be more that come on the market. I'm not going to get into the individual differences among them. And when we talk about this class of medications, the first thing that we really have to understand is what is GLP-1? So GLP-1, we produce it, meaning it's made in our small intestines. And then GLP-1 gets secreted in response to certain nutrients. Well, then what happens? What does GLP-1 do when it gets secreted? Well, its big effect, the biggest one that we notice right now, is that it stimulates glucose-dependent insulin release from the pancreatic islet cells. So it's really cool because you're not releasing the insulin unless your intestine starts to see those nutrients and then the GLP-1 is released and then it goes to the pancreatic islet cells and then it releases insulin. And that is why there is not a lot of worry about hypoglycemia with this medication in comparison to some of our older medications. You can get hypoglycemia with this medication, particularly in combination with other medications. But if you're using it alone, unlikely to happen because you're only going to release the insulin when there is food in the body. But releasing insulin, as I've already alluded to, is not the only thing that GLP-1 receptor agonists do. And the reason for that is, is that there are GLP-1 receptors in multiple tissues. So we know there's GLP-1 receptor in the hypothalamus, for instance, and we were talking about 
that GLP-1 can diminish the appetite. It can work on the appetite centers in the brain. We were talking about GLP-1 slowing down gastric emptying. Well, guess what? There's GLP-1 receptors in the gastric mucosa. It turns out there are GLP-1 receptors in a lot of places like the kidneys, the lung, the heart, skin, and even immune cells. So I think over the next years, we're going to learn a lot more about these medications. I suspect some of it will be good and some of it will be bad. How is that for an ingenious prediction? Some things in the future will be good, some things in the future will be bad. At least one of those two things will come true and you heard it here first. So one of the things with GLP-1 is that it has a very short half-life. We're talking about one to two minutes. And one of the reasons is it's degraded by DPP-4. So let me try and say this the long way. Dipeptidyl peptidase 4. So you have heard now of DPP-4 drugs and what do those end up doing? What they do is improve the half-life of GLP-1. So particularly in obese diabetics, we see that DPP-4 inhibitors improves glycemic control by restoring the physiological levels of GLP-1. So let's run through that just one more time because I know a lot of people have a lot of difficulty, including me, when these initially came out, the GLP-1s and the DPP-4s as to what exactly they do. So running through the whole scenario again, you eat this carbohydrate-rich meal, you eat your gummy bears or whatever, and then GLP-1 is produced in the gut, and then the GLP-1 stimulates the secretion of insulin from the pancreatic beta cells in response to a carbohydrate-rich meal. And like I said, the GLP-1 then does other things not just at the pancreas, but tells your body that, hey, you feel more full, you're going to slow down your digestion a little bit. And by slowing down digestion, you're having less sugar and carbohydrates hit the system as quickly. But this GLP-1 doesn't stick around a long time. And the reason it doesn't stick around is partly because DPP-4 cleaves it. And what we know is that in obese individuals, there's higher levels of DPP-4. So you're going to get rid of your GLP-1, which is trying to lower your blood sugar and tell you that you're full, and you're going to get rid of it quicker if you have more DPP-4 around. So if you use DPP-4 inhibitor medications, you're going to improve glycemic control by trying to restore these physiologic levels of GLP-1. And that's why there's a whole class of medications called DPP-4 inhibitors. And you know the names, or at least some of the names of this class of medication. So there's Genuvia, Citagliptin, there's Trigenta, Linagliptin, there's Angliza, Saxagliptin, and several others, and more will come out. Now what's interesting with these DPP-4 inhibitors is that so far as a class, they don't seem to have cardiovascular risk reduction unlike the GLP-1 agonist class. Now why exactly is that? I don't have all the answers. You know, there's a lot of speculation out there. I mean, one thing is that the DPP-4 inhibitors, they prolong the activity of endogenous GLP-1, 
whereas the GLP-1 receptor agonists, they're really a class of medications that bind to and activate the GLP-1 receptor. So they do work through different mechanisms and therefore should have some different effects. But I don't want to get too into the weeds. Um, we should mention side effects, particularly common adverse effects. So with the GLP-1s, again, you're going to have some effect on the GI system. And that includes the development of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. But often those will subside with time. I think one of the groups of people that you have to be worried about are those with gastroparesis, which is a common problem. Not too common, but you see it in type 2 diabetes. And if someone already has bad gastroparesis, I probably at this point would avoid the GLP-1s or be very careful about how you prescribe them because you could make things worse. And there are differences in which medication you can or can't prescribe based on creatinine clearance. So you have to know that or at least know there is an issue if you have a patient in renal failure. And the same is true with the DPP-4 inhibitors. For example, you can use linagliptin because that is not renally eliminated, but a lot of the medications in that class are. So you just have to be a little bit aware, look on your Hippocrates or whatever program you're using to make sure that you're adjusting according to chronic kidney disease if they have it. And as I mentioned with the DPP-4s, that might be a bit of a turnoff if you're really going for cardiovascular benefits. In fact, some of the DPP-4s, they are suggested not to be used in patients with heart failure, such as saxagliptin and alogliptin. But the thing is, is you have to weigh the risks and the benefits and the ease of use with these medications. The DPP-4s are oral medications. The GLP-1s for now are injectable medications. My understanding is that there may be oral GLP-1s soon on the market. And while I did talk about the cardiovascular benefits or lack of benefits, so I got some benefits with the GLP-1s. We're not seeing a lot of benefit with the DPP-4s. The thing to keep in mind, again, is that there could be a significant benefit in lowering blood glucose with DPP-4 inhibitors that help beyond just cardiovascular disease. The other thing I'll say with the DPP-4s is that some trials, depending on the drug, have shown increased risk of heart failure hospitalizations, and then there has been trials that have not shown increased risk of heart failure. That's one of the problems about talking about new classes of medications. I mean, I know they've been around for a few years now, but the thing is, is we don't know everything about them, and there's more to be written for sure. One thing that often comes up with GLP-1 receptor agonists is the risk of pancreatitis, and it's thought that there probably is an increased risk of pancreatitis. That being said, it's always hard to know because there are a lot of medications that can cause pancreatitis and then a lot of factors that cause pancreatitis like stones and alcohol and all kinds of other things. However, when I see a patient in the hospital that comes in with pancreatitis and I don't know the etiology and they are on a glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonist, I do stop the medication because in my mind, I can't find another cause and maybe it would have been idiopathic whether or not they had been on that GLP-1, but I can't be certain it's not the medication and it's a serious enough problem that I think there's enough alternatives in diabetes that's worth stopping. At least that's my practice. If there's one thing certain in medicine is that there's going to be uncertainty 
At the same time, more information helps solve uncertainty. And one thing for certain is that I could say a lot more about GLP-1s and DPP-4 inhibitors. This is far from comprehensive. There's a lot more effects, both beneficial and side effects that can happen with these medications. There's obviously a lot of important differences among the individual drugs in these classes of medications. But I hope you gained a little bit more insight and understanding and appreciation of these medications and that it will be clinically useful for you as healthcare practitioners. This is Dr. Gil Parat signing off. Catch you on the next round.